At this time, we can dismiss the children for junior church. And while they're making their way back, will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Obadiah. The prophet Obadiah. If you are getting used to where the minor prophets are, I always go to the middle. Usually find Psalms when you go to the middle. And then you make your way to the right until you get through the big books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then some other books, and you'll eventually get to Obadiah. There's no shame in using the table of contents. But if you have my exact Bible, it's on page 862. (laughs) As the children are making their way back, as we began our study of Obadiah last Sunday, we're going to finish our study of Obadiah this morning. Last week, we saw what God does to injustice, and we found out that it was really good news for those who have suffered injustice. We also saw how pride can destroy a nation and a people because God humbles the proud. Today we'll finish with verses 15 through 22, which I'm going to read after I pray. And before I pray, where are your roots that the kids sang about? How are those roots doing? Take a minute now and ask God to work on those roots of yours as he feeds us and nourishes us during our worship service. Take a minute now and then I will pray. Heavenly Father, give us deep roots in you and your word. We want to say with the children and the psalmist who wrote Psalm 1 that we want to be blessed. We don't want to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. We want to delight in your word. We want to yield our fruit in season and we want leaves that don't wither. And so, Father, nourish us now through your word. Feed us. Make the fruit of your Holy Spirit grow exactly where we need it. Do for our hearts today what only you can do and which we desperately need you to do. Speak to us in our fears and our failures and our worries and comfort us with your love and peace and joy. Teach us now, nourish us, and give us deep roots in your word. In Christ's name, we thank you and pray. Amen. Well, the prophet Obadiah, verses 15 through the end, verse 21. This is the good and glorious word of our Lord. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations... As you have done, it shall be done to you. 
your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's how the prophet Obadiah ends. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Look at that last verse again. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. That's God's city. To rule Mount Esau. That's the city representing God's enemy, Edom, which we learned about last week. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah is going around to Israel, reminding them that God has a plan, a day of the Lord, of judgment on her enemies, typified in the particular instance of Edom, the nation, which they have over a millennium relationship with, going all the way back to Jacob and Esau. God has a day for Edom, the day of the Lord. And that's the first 14 verses, a day of judgment for Edom. But as we turn to verse 15, look at it again. For the day of the Lord is near, not just upon Edom, but upon all the nations. And so the prophets were saying judgment is coming on all sin, all injustice, every nation that oppresses, every act of sin, every act of abuse, every act of crime against humanity will be judged On a day, on the day of the Lord, on the final day of judgment, no victim is going to watch what God does and then say, I don't think justice was served. That's not going to happen on the day of judgment. No victimizer will say, no oppressor will say, ooh, I'm really glad God let that one slide. That is not going to happen on the final day of judgment. And the prophets went around to Israel in their geopolitical situation, reminding them that God does not forget. He brings justice. And it's more than justice, as we'll see this morning, but it is justice. Verse 15, one more time. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. So justice. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So that is justice. God promises justice. That was the theme of last week. But it's more than justice. It's kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, there's justice. Where God's reign rules, where God's word is loved, there will be justice because that's where his kingdom is. Look at verse 21 again. 
Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. Here's the line. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So there is justice, but where is there justice? There's justice where God's kingdom is. And God is saying, I'm not just bringing justice, I'm bringing myself, my kingdom, my law, my word, my way, my character. I'm bringing my kingdom. When God talks about judgment, he's not just angry at sinful disobedience. He's letting the world know, I had a design. I built a garden. I made the world from scratch. I put you in it. And you were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and make holiness reign across all of the planet. And you destroyed it. And you crushed it. And you made it about your own little kingdom. God is saying, I am bringing my kingdom. And the prophets had that message, and then Jesus one day comes to bring that message more perfectly. God is saying through the prophet when he judges that it's all about his kingdom coming. His design was beautiful. Life in God's kingdom was lovely. Life in God's kingdom is hopeful. Love in God's kingdom is abundant. And that we have ruined his kingdom by making it all about our own little kingdoms. So in Obadiah, we see God's kingdom coming. God promises it, and it's a good thing to know how it comes, when it comes, and why it comes. So we'll see five things about God's kingdom this morning in our verses. And the first thing we're going to see is in verse 15, and it's kingdom justice. Kingdom justice. In God's kingdom, how will he bring justice? Verse 15 again. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So there is a day of the Lord for all nations, past, present, and future, and everyone is going to get what they deserve. Look at that line at the end of verse 15. Your deeds shall return on your own head. In God's kingdom, the law is an eye for an eye. Moses gives that law to the people. It doesn't mean if you lose an eye, take someone else's eye. It means if you lose an eye, then you need to be compensated for the loss of that eye. If you lose a sheep, you need to be compensated for the loss of a sheep. The legal principle is lex talionis, the law of retaliation. And it doesn't mean revenge. As kids grow up, they learn revenge. (laughs) He hit me first. I need to hit him back. That is not the principle from God's kingdom justice. It means a fair punishment for the crime committed. It means that everyone watching will say their justice was done. You break it, you buy it. God's justice was intended to be fair to all victims and proportionate to the crime. So we're all legal scholars now. And this law of God is given to Moses and what it was supposed to do in God's kingdom, which was supposed to happen in Israel for a time. And now, wherever God's people are all over the world, when God's kingdom is clear, this law of justice is supposed to prevent vengeance. It's supposed to prevent retribution. It's supposed to prevent cycles of retaliation. And it's supposed to prevent governments over-punishing people disproportionate to the crimes they committed. At least it's supposed to do all of that. And this is God's law for all nations, which he promises to deliver one day on the day of the Lord. And so this is Obadiah's good news about kingdom justice. 
No human will escape judgment. No nation will get a free pass. Every human and nation, you and me included, will face God's perfect, flawless, all-knowing, uh-oh, judgment. But because God is perfect and all-knowing, the judgment will be perfectly just and perfectly based on truth. Think about what it means to submit your life to an all-knowing, perfect, all-loving God who promises perfect justice. You know that you're not getting judged for something you didn't do. Uh, That means you know you're going to face judgment for all that you did do, though. So if you delete your browsing history, God does not forget where he put the receipts. When you lie to your parents, God is not fooled. When you lie to your children, God doesn't scratch his head saying, I don't know if that's how it went. He knows. When you lie at work, if you just cheated on your taxes, God doesn't rely on QuickBooks. You can't hide that from him. This is God's kingdom justice. What you did will be done to you. It will be thorough and perfect justice. All victims, when God brings his justice in his kingdom, all victims will say, amen, there was justice. And all perpetrators will say, oh no, there was justice. Let me ask you a question. If you watch a movie or read a book and the bad guy gets it in the end in a creative way connected to the type of crimes they were committing, don't you love that? Isn't that the best end of a movie? Why do we like poetic justice when we read stories? Because we were designed by a God of perfect justice. And we were made in his image to love proportionate justice. To love when the bad guy gets it in the end. You set a trap and you fell into that trap. We love justice like that. Growing up for me, it was Wild E. Coyote trying to get the roadrunner. <laughs> to date myself, I was a child of the 80s. And so... Wild E. Coyote was trying to get Roadrunner and he set a trap and he always fell into his own trap. Our hearts love that because we think it's fair. God promises perfect justice. Where his kingdom is, that is where justice is. But the problem is we love that and then we remember in the face of God's law that we also have broken God's law. We have sinned. We have done injustice and we will face the consequences and God will not forget what we did. So we will be judged too. So in God's kingdom, according to Obadiah, there will be kingdom justice and it will be perfect. That's point one. But the second thing we see is that there will be kingdom wrath. Kingdom wrath. And we too have to figure out how to face that. That's in verse 16, kingdom wrath. Look at verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So here's Obadiah speaking about Edom. Edom, the nation to the southeast of Israel. They had, remember, when Babylon attacked in 586 B.C., And the exiles were running from Israel. Edom, the former neighbor and descendant and and ancestor and relational connection to Israel, they took advantage of the exiles trying to escape the persecution. They profited from that. And he's saying, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, 
you eat them. Now all the nations are going to drink as well. They shall drink and, drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. They're going to have a final chapter and they're going to be written out of the history books one day. God said to Edom, for the injustice you committed, you're going to have a final day. Your chapter is going to end before the book ends. I will put an end to your crimes and sins. Look at verse 16, the last line, and shall be as though they had never been. And the prophet symbolizes this with drinking language. Verse 16, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, whenever drinking like this comes up, it has to do with God's wrath. It's not drinking alcohol. It's not drinking other things. It's drinking God's wrath. God's going to pour out his wrath and sinners are going to drink it. In Isaiah 51, the prophet says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have, here's the language, drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So Obadiah is going around saying there's a cup that you're going to have to drink and it's the cup of God's wrath. As you have poured out your wrath on others, you will drink the cup of God's wrath. And all of us reading so far are wondering, where is the good news here? Judgment? God's wrath? Really? Well, our hearts were designed to want a wrathful God. Did you know that? Our hearts were designed to, in a world full of sin, want a God of wrath. I know that's not popular. Don't start out your evangelism with that this week. Hey, can I tell you about God? He is so full of wrath. But if you get any deeper than the surface level with someone, our hearts want a God of wrath. Think about it. If God had no wrath on sin and suffering and destruction and oppression and victimization, then we would know he doesn't care about people. Imagine a father watching his child get bullied over and over and sitting back, not doing anything about it and not even getting angry. Would you say, I want a father who is only full of love? Would a father not have wrath for that situation? A loving father would. Imagine a friend watching her friend destroy her life in addiction and not being angry at that addiction at all, not being angry at the source of that, not being angry at the friends around her who are tempting her in that way. Would that be a friend? No, it wouldn't. I've heard this definition about wrath, and I think it's helpful. God's going to pour out his wrath. Here's a good definition. Wrath is God's settled opposition to everything that destroys everything he loves. I'll say it again. Wrath is God's settled opposition to everything that destroys everything God loves. So Edom had this relationship with Israel and it went back over a thousand years. And eventually as Israel is suffering and their exiles are running away from an oppressive Babylonian army coming in, Edom decides their former neighbor and former relation, I'm going to take advantage of them at their lowest moment. God has wrath for that. And that's a good thing. Our hearts do want God's wrath on sin like that. And God's wrath, according to verse 16, is final and forever. 
Look at the last line of verse 16. And shall be, Edom, as though they had never been. In Edom's day, that day came. In the 6th century BC, the Neo-Babylonian Empire under King Nabonidus conquered Edom and assumed them into their nation. And so Edom was no more. Edom, as God's promise, God's pro- God promised, faced God's wrath and has been gone from the history books for 2,500 years because God promised to be a God of wrath. But the promise isn't just for Edom. It's for all nations and all sin. And this, of course, leads our hearts to think not just of the judgment of Edom from Obadiah, but of final judgment. The Bible calls the destination of final judgment hell. Hell is the separation from God forever, longer than 2,500 years. And when we think about hell, it is God's wrath poured out nonstop forever, which is really good news for justice. Imagine for a moment not believing in hell. Imagine for a moment not hearing the words of Obadiah and having joy that God would pour out wrath on evil. Imagine living and trying to build a nation that doesn't believe that God will handle it rightly in the end. What kind of world would be produced if it really was true that millions of bad guys got away with it? And that's the end. There is no God who will judge in the end. If you look at history, millions of victimizers have gotten away with it here. But according to God, he says that we'll not get away with it on the last day. Only hell can make a world like ours bearable. Only hell can promise true justice. But it gets even worse. Because if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if God will not pour out wrath on the enemies of God, then we as a people are going to have to figure out how to get perfect justice here. And we're going to have to enact it all ourselves. We're going to have to execute perfect justice or there will be no justice at all. Uh, Picture uh, a yard with two boys punching each other back and forth. This is completely hypothetical. I, I have no particular instance in mind. If these two boys have no promise of a parent intervening, if they have no hope that God sees it, and if they desire justice, which our hearts desire... What must the punched boy do? He must punch back. Or there will be no justice. If no parent will intervene, if no God sees that, and if he wants justice and he is punched, he must punch back. Uh, Why do people protest in the streets of many countries about any issue? This weekend, maybe you saw it, hundreds of thousands of people in Israel are protesting the government plans to overhaul their judicial system. I don't have an opinion on the plan. I haven't even studied it. I just know hundreds of thousands of people are furious about what's going on in Israel with their legal system because they want justice. In recent years in India, you had over a million people protest farm bills. In Hong Kong, two million people protesting government control. Our country has seen protests too, but it's much bigger across the globe. Why do people protest even though they go to the point of violence and committing wrongs? People protest when they think there is no justice and I need to be heard. I must be heard. They're assuming that nobody is listening. But as we've seen in our own country, in light of some protests, some protests got more violent and did more harm than the cause that They were protesting. And so 
if you don't believe God sees it, if you don't believe there's a God of justice, you must get violent. You must get louder. You must enact justice yourself. You must punch back. And so the secular response to injustice is based on not believing in God and not believing in wrath and not believing in hell. And that response can only lead to more injustice. Because if there isn't a just God, we must do it ourselves. But God's kingdom has wrath. And that's good news. And every nation will drink it. Let's pause for a moment, though. We've got God's justice, and all the victims said amen. We've got God's wrath, and we want justice, so we want wrath. But if that's all God promised, justice and wrath, what would happen to all of those victims? What would happen to everything we lost as a result of being a victim? Does God have a promise more than just justice? Well, he does. Because justice and wrath is half the story. Because third, God's kingdom promises restoration. Point one, kingdom justice. Point two, kingdom wrath. Now point three, kingdom restoration. You see this theme over and over in the prophets. Look at verse 17 and 18. But in Mount Zion, that's God's city, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And so here we see that when God brings justice to the oppressors, he will bring restoration to his people. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Remember last week when Israel was attacked by Babylon, the people were running away as refugees. Edom attacked the refugees and exploited them. So look at the end of verse 18. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. Stop there. The house of Esau exploited refugees. And so God says to Edom, you're not even going to have a refugee. You exploited refugees. You're not even going to have a refugee who makes it out of Esau, out of Edom. Justice. But there's also restoration because look at verse 17 now. But in Mount Zion, where God's kingdom is, there shall be those who escape. God's people who went out as exiles, some of them made it. Some of them made it to see the rebuilding of the temple. Some of them made it to see some restoration. Some of them made it through. And in God's kingdom, there isn't just justice and wrath, which is good enough, but there's restoration for God's people. Verse 17, again, in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy. And look at this line. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. What you lost in this world of sin and suffering and injustice, the Lord will repay you. More than you lost, he promises to do that. This is kingdom restoration. If you've suffered, God will make it right in the age to come. The new heavens and the new earth. All suffering will lead to God's glory. Even as we die, God will make it right in the end. And in the new heavens and the new earth, our deaths will lead to God's glory. If you've been mocked your whole life, God will make it right in the end. And in the new heavens and the new earth, all former mockery will lead to God's glory and your joy in heaven. The days you've lost to the effects of sin, 
like pain and suffering. Those will not go wasted. God will restore your health forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's get practical. Where God's kingdom is, now there is spiritual restoration and some restoration of our situation. But in the new heavens and the new earth, perfect restoration. Let's get practical. If you have a hundred years of bad eyesight, you've got a billion years of better than 2020 vision. If you've had a hundred years of loneliness here, you have a billion years of sweet fellowship coming. If you've had a hundred years of confusion, you have a billion years coming of clarity. A hundred years of rejection, you have a billion years of acceptance. A hundred years of oppression, you have a billion years of restoration. And the billion years, when those billion years are over, we will have just begun. That's the promise. Kingdom restoration. And because humans are bad at getting perfect justice here, this is such good news for so many of you who have suffered, who have lost. You've longed for the better kingdom. Where God's kingdom is, there will be restoration. And he promises it. And one day, you will have it in abundance in his presence forever forwards. We support as a ministry here, Johnny and Friends. Johnny Erickson Tata, maybe some of you know her, 55 years ago, she was in an injury and became a quadriplegic, and so she's been in a wheelchair for the last 55 years. She thinks all the time about kingdom restoration. She doesn't think and hasn't seen so far her getting her use of her body back in this life, but she knows it will come in the age to come. And she wrote this in her booklet, Hope the Best of Things. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, and he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, this is Johnny speaking, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble. Because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. She longs for kingdom restoration. In another place, she has said, you know, one day Jesus is going to wipe away all my tears and it will be on the day when I can finally use my arms again, but I won't have to wipe away my tears with those healthy arms because Jesus will have wiped all my tears away. The hope in a world of sin and injustice is that God promises restoration. Jacob will have his possessions back. We will regain more than what we lost. Kingdom restoration is promised. Back then and for us today. Which is point three, kingdom restoration. Which brings us to point four. Our job as Christians today in the Great Commission is to pray for And obey God in kingdom expansion. That's point four, kingdom expansion. We have the good news that God forgives sinners and brings justice. We now go out into the world and preach 
the kingdom. Kingdom expansion is verses 19 and 20. And here we have a geographical map of north, south, east, and west around God's people. Verse 19. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Here we have a list of many of Israel's enemies in the day of Obadiah. It covered a large geographic region and God is going to give the whole world to his people. But by the time Jesus arrived, the whole world was the enemy of God's people. But that didn't stop the kingdom. Jesus arrives and he speaks of the coming kingdom of God. In Mark 1 verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, here it is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God that everyone was waiting for is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus inaugurates his kingdom in his earthly ministry. He brings his kingdom and he said that entrance into the kingdom is not about joining the right military faction. It's about repenting of your sins and believing. It's about trusting the good news that Jesus is the savior we needed. That he is the one who can bring his kingdom as Israel in the old covenant failed to bring that perfect kingdom. God did not fail. He sent his son to bring that kingdom Repent and believe. Repent of your sins. Join the kingdom of God. Believe in the good news. But then after his resurrection, having defeated sin, Satan, and death, Jesus gives his disciples, us, the great commission. He says this at the end of Matthew. And Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Remember, all nations, that's where justice and wrath is coming. But the invitation is going out to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Friends, God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom is expanding all over the earth. Not just the region of the Negev and the region of Gilead and the region of the Philistines and the region of Canaan all over the earth. And nothing can stop it because Jesus builds his church. It stretches further than the kingdom of Israel in Obadiah's day. And Jesus doesn't have some authority. He has all authority. And so the kingdom expansion that the Israelites of Obadiah's day longed for is happening now as the kingdom of Jesus spreads across the earth. And we pray that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? If you pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray with Jesus that his kingdom would expand. And it does. It does here. It does as we believe in the good news. It does as our hearts and homes are filled with roots that deeply love God's word. As we build marriages and friendships and relationships and businesses around God's principles, that is where his kingdom is expanding and we see the fruit of that and it gives us joy. And we are called to expand that kingdom, not with a sword, 
but with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so as we lead up to Easter, friends, make sure, take some of those postcards in the breezeway between the foyer and outdoors and invite your neighbors, not my neighbors, I'll invite my neighbors. You invite your neighbors, come to Good Friday, come to the egg hunt, come to the pancake breakfast. And the room that now smells like onions is going to smell like maple syrup on Easter Sunday. And then have them stay, invite them to stay with you and make a seat for them to hear the good news on Easter Sunday that the tomb is empty. God's kingdom has come. Sin, Satan, and death are defeated. We want the kingdom to expand. And so we share the good news. That's point four, kingdom expansion. And that is our responsibility, the Great Commission, to go bring that good news to the world. And Jesus will take care of the expansion. Which leads us fifth and finally to point five, kingdom savior, kingdom savior. The kingdom in Obadiah's day was going to need a savior and God always had leaders rise up, but he has a savior promise. Look at verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Friends, God's promise of justice and wrath And restoration and expansion is made possible when God sends someone to deliver. He did it with Moses. He did it with the judges. He did it with some of the prophets. He did it with Ezra and Nehemiah as they rebuilt some of what was taken away that the Babylonians took over and destroyed in 586. God sends saviors to deliver But when Jesus showed up, the world was still full of sin and injustice and death and suffering. And so God was going to have to send a true savior. Someone better than Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and and Sarah and Esther and all the great men and women he had sent before to deliver. He was going to send a true savior. And so saviors will go up to Mount Zion, but another savior would come to bring, at the end of verse 21, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom God promises has a savior, and it is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom, and so we seek first his kingdom in our lives, our homes, and our workplaces. And there can only be justice where God's kingdom and law is followed. Other kingdoms of the world only have power distribution. Think about that last day. And think about some of the lines people use about justice today. On the last day, every other kingdom apart from the kingdom of Jesus Christ will have been found to have been on the wrong side of history. But where the kingdom of Jesus in a heart takes root, There's justice and there's restoration. Where the kingdom of Jesus takes root in a home, there will be justice and there will be restoration. Where the kingdom of Jesus takes root in a nation, there will be justice and restoration. But apart from the kingdom of Jesus, we will not have what our hearts really desire. And so God had to send the Savior of God's people. Jesus came the first time not to bring the wrath of God on injustice, But he will come one day to bring that wrath. Our hearts leap in terror at this. The coming wrath of God on every sin I've ever committed, on all injustice I've participated in. How will we be spared from this wrath? 
We've all sinned. We've all been unjust. We've all been prideful. How can we avoid drinking this cup of God's wrath that Obadiah prophetically and beautifully painted that picture of? Everyone will drink the cup of God's wrath. How are we going to avoid that? Well, as I close, friends, let me tell you about another drink. Another cup of God's wrath. Some of your hearts knew this is where we were headed as we close out Obadiah. Because on the night Jesus was betrayed, after the Lord's Supper, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus knew what was going to happen on Good Friday. And if you come and worship with us on Good Friday, you'll hear a wonderful remembrance of this, and your heart will be fixed on Jesus and what he did on Good Friday. But the night he was betrayed, here's what Jesus prayed in the Garden. Mark 14, verse 36 knowing what was going to have to happen, that Obadiah predicted and that Jesus was bringing. It says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew that to pay for sinners... And to pay for our sins so that any of us could have redemption and restoration and hope and new bodies. That he was going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross. And he said, Lord, if there's any other way, if anyone else can drink the cup of your wrath, make it happen. And the answer to the son in the garden from the father was, son, no one else can drink it. You're going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus, up all night, mocked, bruised, beaten, falsely accused, tortured, and publicly executed. And then on the cross, facing the wrath of God for those moments, he did. He drank the cup of of God's wrath, which was going to be poured out on all the nations. He drank it all so that sinners could be saved. Amen? Amen. He drank it all. And so God's people await his kingdom's full arrival. Christians debate about the end times, but we all agree there will be a judgment day one day, a day of glorious and perfect wrath when every sin is paid for and God's people are restored, when God's kingdom is all over the earth and when we live with our king who drank the cup of God's wrath so that even Edomites could be saved. So may God impress on our hearts the message of Obadiah. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you will face God's wrath one day. So repent and believe the good news. And see God's kingdom in your heart and in your home and in your neighborhood. Bring restoration and justice to your situation. And perfect restoration in the age to come. But if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, on the last day you will not face God's wrath because Jesus on the cross faced it for you. You will hear, well done, faithful servant. Because Jesus paid it all. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have good news for the world. And the message of Obadiah is this, as I close. The king of justice, 
drank the cup of God's wrath to provide restoration and to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. May God help us be a church that lives out his kingdom and receives his grace and mercy for our time of need. His kingdom come, his will be done here among us as it is in heaven. And then the kingdom truly shall be, as Obadiah says, the Lord's. Let me pray. Lord, your prophet had hard words about injustice, a promise of perfect justice. Thank you for that. A promise of perfect wrath. Thank you for that. Our hearts love poetic justice. And so thank you for promising perfect wrath. And Lord, thank you for promising perfect restoration. That everything we have lost as a result of living in a sinful world, you will provide in the new heavens and new earth more than we could ever even imagine. And our hearts sing that and long for that restoration. Lord, thank you for everything your kingdom promises. Help your kingdom come in our hearts and in our homes. Will your will be done in our church and in our hearts and in our homes as it is in heaven. And thank you most of all that you promised to pour out your wrath. And yet as we see your son bring that kingdom, we know that he drank the cup of your wrath so that we wouldn't have to. In the precious name of your wrath drinking son and our wrath drinking savior, we thank you and pray. And amen. Our God is